You're listening to the Irish Times. The hurling season is over and just in time, Pat Nugent is back on the Out of Time podcast. Welcome back, Pat. Thanks very much, Maliki. <laughs> Did you enjoy your time away? Nope. <laughs> The hurling season was in full flow when you left, and uh, now you're back, and uh, we can only we only have the entrails to sift through. Yeah, they're fun entrails, though. In fairness, yeah. they, like it, when you, it's it's brilliant that a season like we had, which everybody was saying coming into this game was the best mm. uh, hurling season of all time, it kind of caps it off lovely to have somebody end a famine, as opposed to having Galway retain their title. No offense to our yeah, Galway which, listeners. Which would you have preferred, the the, uh, the ending of a famine or an actual good game? Because the game was very, very poor. I think the ending of a famine caps it off best. It sort of beats all. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a good game, you're right. We can't kind of rewrite it completely. It was, it took off in, with about 10 minutes left on the clock, which was actually 18 minutes left on the clock. (laughs) (laughs) The ending of this particular famine as well was, was... If they were going to end one famine, I suppose there's only really this one, Waterford's and, and Dublin's left. So of all of them to end, the outpouring for this one was was just the right one. Yeah, it absolutely was. I did, mind you, get a text from a couple of people in Waterford yesterday by, who by about eight o'clock yesterday evening were already going, oh, right, I'm slightly sick of Limerick now already because <laughs> they're thinking of their own 60-year wait. Uh, yeah, I was I was seeing stuff uh, online from them after 10 minutes of the game going, where was this Galway shooting in the first 10 minutes last year? <laughs> never mind, never mind right now. Uh, we are... We are doing a fairly hurling-heavy podcast this morning, but we will be talking to you in the second half about the new Man City documentary. Yeah, All or Nothing, the um, Mm. eight-part Amazon documentary behind the scenes at Man City. Now, check out the man who has been off for a month and has has had time to watch an eight-part documentary on Man City. But uh, first of all, we'll get into the hurling. Sean Moran is here. Thanks for coming in, Sean. No problem. And Keith Duggan is on the line. How are you, Keith? Good, good. Thanks, Mal. Lads, we were all, all there yesterday. Um, Sean, I, I guess we may as well get into, first of all, the fact that um, it, it was a disappointing final up until it wasn't a disappointing final. And then it was utterly enthralling for the last, as Pat says, the last sort of 18 minutes, including all the injury time. Yeah, it was. I mean, I remember noting at the start, even in the initial exchanges, there was something like five wides between them. In the first two and a half minutes. Yeah, just firing from all over the place. Uh, It it became, I suppose, a slightly unengaging match uh, after that because Limerick were so much on top and any time Galway threatened to come back into Mm. it and they actually gained the lead for a little bit, a few few seconds before the first Limerick Mm. goal. But after that, you just this kind of this heavy sense that... uh, this match isn't really in the hazard mm-hmm. a- anymore. Like it, this is one-way traffic, and every time Galway got half a head of steam up, Limerick seems to get a goal, and you know it, it just seemed to be heading to a fairly predictable conclusion, which is great from the Limerick supporters' point of view. There's nothing better if you're going to end a famine than having it in a one-sided match. But uh, of course, this extraordinary twist at the end, and one that must have really haunted the Limerick support, thinking back to 1994 and, you know, that famous 2-5 that they conceded in four minutes, 14 seconds uh, uh, to Offaly uh, to, to lose what looked 
like a match they were going to win as well. And you could kind of sense those ghosts gathering all around the place when, when oh, going away. Oh, completely. I, funny, I, and that was the, the, the thrust of the, the column I wrote this morning. And Keith, like a lot of, I heard some uh, interviews back and I was even listening, Shane Dowling was on with uh, Marty Morrissey on RT Radio this morning. Uh, and he was saying that that afterwards he had gone around and asked like John Kiley, Paul Kinnerk, and five or six other members of of the Limerick team, just kind of tentatively going, "Were you thinking of of 1994 at any stage?" And to a man, they all said, "Of course we were," because it was the thing that that sort of hung over everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it must have been a very strange sensation to be a Limerick supporter, um, let alone anyone involved in the squad, uh, throughout the game, because it just seemed sort of suspiciously easy, you know. That yeah. They must have felt that you know there was something of a trap about it, um, like particularly anyone old enough to remember 1980 or even come back to 73, and obviously um, 1994. Just the way that everything just seemed to unfold a little bit too easily for them, and they, they just you know they were cruising. Um, so when it when it began to turn, um, I imagine. I imagine several Limerick supporters or Limerick people were sort of, they'd almost steal themselves for it, you know. Um, but it's funny, I, I, like, even though Limerick, Limerick went one fifteen to 10 ahead and then Canning hit two points in the trot mm. and then came um, the, 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 the goal of, of the, the McInerney dispossession. But after that, like, Galway scored... Um, they outscored Limerick by four, four points on the trot and then came the third Limerick goal. Mm. So things had started to sort of turn in the sense that Limerick's scores had slowed to a trickle if you take away both those goals, which were essentially off Galway errors prior to the the sort of the real nail biting uh, last last 10 minutes. After the 45th minute, Waterford, or sorry, Limerick got one point. Yeah. And if you add on the injury time, that's basically one point in 33 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Which is astonishing that they managed to get it. It was real finishing post fever. Uh, absolutely. And what was what was so noticeable was that um, they were freezing in possession. All the things, all the things that you that you've watched Limerick do all year that 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 made them such a force. You know, they're they're really accurate. Stick passing into the into the clever running of Shamie Flanagan and the corner fl- forwards. That was all just stopping. Like you know, they were playing crossfield balls. Like like the the most famous one was was Graham Mulcahy's one to Keen Lynch after Canning had scored his goal. When all Limerick needed to do was either keep possession or get the ball to the other end of the pitch. But a crossfield ball from Mulcahy was essentially back at at wing back, playing a crossfield ball into midfield, and like missing Keane Lynch by 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 ten feet mm. for a very simple pass, like that sort of stuff. That was just, I mean, like that was a manifestation of the nerves that were being felt everywhere in the stadium. And I I was wondering, and you could kind of feel it when when Canning got those those two points uh, on the bounce. Was that the wobble? And you could, you could. It, it, there was a sense in the stadium of everybody just waiting on the wobble that that, that was going to come. And it's funny, even as, even Darling was sort of saying it afterwards. That's what history means, you know. Like 
this team is young and they want to write their own history. But every, you know, that's in everybody's head. You know that this i this idea that everything just tightens up at the at the exact moment that you can't afford it to tighten up because like we're sitting here and we we all watched the game we we were there. It was a one point hiding in the end, Sean. When you say yeah. that, you know, like they they hit twenty wides, they could afford to win yeah. an All Ireland final by still still with with hitting twenty wides. Well, that was the interesting thing about it because most of the pre match consensus was that whereas Galway could afford not to play to their best and yeah. still win, that that wouldn't be open to Limerick. Mm. And yet Limerick slipped back into traits that would have been associated with them earlier in the year when they were still a kind of a coming force. And and that really kind of loose shooting was one of them. Mm. I mean, one of the most uh, extraordinary improvements wrought by Limerick going into championship was how they cut back on, on their, their number of wides and they became fairly efficient scoring. But uh, yesterday, you know, 20, 20 wides, it's an, it's an extraordinary uh, total to, to put up and still win a match. But, I mean, they they will know better than anyone that, you know, what defines the the winners uh, is the scoreline at the at, at the end. Yeah. This thing about Kevin Heffernan that, uh, that his friend Jackie Gilroy, Pat's father, had said about him that he had told him before his first match that the important thing was to be a point ahead at the end. In other words, yeah. <laughs> you're on the right side of the scoreboard. And for Limerick, having been through you know five finals, um, including the trauma of, of 1994, where they largely controlled a match that just got away from them in a few minutes at the end, just to be that point ahead. And in fairness to Graham Mulcahy, I mean, the point he took yeah. that extended the lead to two and was ultimately the winning mm. point was very well taken and it was it, it took nerve and, and Peter Casey was very I mean Casey's interventions off, off the bench have been hugely significant for, for Limerick as well as Dowling's but just being able to take that score put the point over and it demonstrates and I'm sure Galway thought this afterwards that there is no time in a match where effort is wasted where it's not worth your while to make a block because mm. the match is going against you so badly or it's not worth your while to concentrate on getting a score because although they looked completely adrift that match ended up being a one point match and so it's the tiny margins that you wouldn't have suspected right up until injury time would, would govern the outcome of the match and that's what governed them I find it interesting Keith just in that sort of period maybe say from the 55th minute onwards when Limerick needed to to strike for home ultimately Shane Dowling scored his goal from a turnover from from Peter Casey and ultimately the subs you know that was their contribution to to the victory but I definitely found from that sort of 55th minute onwards when Limerick were bringing in their subs and beforehand we we all saw this as a strength of Limerick's that they had this deep bench I found that 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 they seemed to get a take a while to get to the pitch of the game they seemed not to be bringing that contribution that that we all presumed that they were going to bring yeah but it must be a very strange game to try and get to the pitch of mm. because Galway really hadn't performed to the level that anyone expected. And I, I imagine Limerick, John Kiley, that I imagine they were in a place they didn't really expect to be, where they kind of just had to steer a win that they all, all but had in their grasp home, you know, which hasn't been the case for them throughout the championship. 
Um, like it couldn't have been a more different uh, scenario than their than their uh, than their semi final win over Cork. So, yeah, I mean, like I agree, it, it was just one of those finals that sort of bamboozled all expectations. Mm. I mean, uh, Galway also, it, I'm, I'm, like they finished the game with a lot more energy than they began the game. They just looked so lethargic and stuck to the ground for the first sort of 20, 25 minutes. And it wasn't really until the hour mark that they, they finally sort of showed up in, in recognisable form. And we Sean, it just a little bit too late. Sean, I think that, um, as we were saying about Limerick, it's, it's kind of hard to have soft hands when your, your dander is up, as it were, and they were definitely feeling the weight of history. But even while their first touch wasn't on point and they were taking a split second um, less to set their feet to hit shots at the post, they they absolutely kept the system going all the time and the work rate, didn't they? And even matching up to, they clearly targeted the early few minutes of the match to target Galway's physicality and make sure that Galway didn't get a run on them. Like even, we love picking out moments when somebody gets put in their arse and last year it was Garrod McInerney putting people on their arse. But this year, when he ran into Seamus Flanagan and got knocked backwards, it kind of set a tone that Limerick weren't going to be backing down from this in any way. Yeah, but I think it's worth remembering. I mean, Galway amassed wides in that first half as well. Limerick's at 11, Galway ends up with 10. Yeah. Uh, so, it, in a way, uh, I, I admire it about Limerick that for a young team, they stick to the script uh, going off it when when necessary and and devastatingly so at, at times. But they don't get spooked by, by a match that's going against them. And they went out and, you know, they built their early lead and they looked very they looked very comfortable. Uh, and it was surprising in a way because, I mean, for all that they've been impressive this season, it is hard to walk into. I mean, I worked out that only one team in, in 22 years has wandered into its first All-Ireland final and won it, uh, you know, with, with no one on the team with an All-Ireland medal, completely uh, inexperienced. And... Uh, they were they were they were terrific at that, and the wides. I suppose they've been used to coming through that they can hit wides. You know, there's a bit of a tendency there that they had curbed largely throughout the summer, but it didn't derail them. They didn't lose heart. They just they kept going. They they kept shooting, and uh, you know, as I say, for them to end up with with the All Ireland, regardless, I mean, a point would have been easier in the vans if. Go ahead and got the two-two yeah. in injury time, but <laughs> the fact is that they they, they won it. Malky, they really negated the Galway forwards, aside from Joe Canning and uh, Joe Cooney a little bit, a little bit, yeah. But you were particularly fascinated by um, Casey and Johnny Glynn in well, the full forward I, line. I just, I mean, a big part of the build-up is we were talking about how. Uh, good a match Limerick were for Galway physically because they are big lads and Galway are big lads and and this physicality you were going well Limerick have the match of them more or less everywhere on the pitch except in the full back line where they're just not as big um, and especially Mike Casey going to be playing on Johnny Glynn Johnny Glynn who had become such a focal point for Galway um, throughout Throughout the, especially the games since the Leinster final and the Leinster final replay, um, and so I watched the two of them very closely throughout the game. And you know, Casey was giving him five inches and just a pound short of four stone. Um, four stone. Four stone. Yeah, and 
just played them just so cleverly, you know, played cat and mouse against them. It re- it reminded me, uh, there was a um, an Ireland soccer international about uh, maybe 10 years ago when Ireland were playing the Czech Republic. And remember Jan Collar, the big uh, six foot seven guy yeah. who was playing for the Czech Republic. And there was all this... Um, how are Ireland going to play against this guy? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you handle somebody like this? And no less a hero than Paul McShane played him off the park one night in a, in a game and just said and was asked afterwards, how do you, how, you know, how do you manage that? And he says you just got to play a bit of cat and mouse with him. And this this was it was it was exactly that idea yesterday. You play a bit of cat and mouse. You don't you don't have to go for every ball. Indeed, you don't have to go for any ball. All you've got to do is stop him catching the ball. And Glynn just did not, he, he caught one ball above his head in the whole 78 minutes. And that was in injury time when uh, one of the Galway forwards actually had lost his hurley and kicked the ball into him and he caught it and th- nothing came of it. Casey had gone off injured at that stage. He went off after 50 minutes. But I thought he played an absolutely perfect game against him because he shut down that one avenue and changed changed what the, the the question around Johnny Glynn had to be. The question that we went in asking was, how are Limerick going to deal with him? Whereas the question became, what are Galway going to do when Johnny Glynn doesn't work? Johnny Glynn had to keep going out to, to wing forward to try and catch puck outs to have any effect on the game whatsoever. And in negating that, that was such a huge part of for Limerick. It, it needs to be pointed out as well, though, that the, the Galway service uh, to mm-hmm. Glynn um, was very poor. Mm. Uh, you know, he didn't have this sort of silver service stuff coming in that he had in previous matches. No, that's true, Sean. And but he did. Have, he did there was two balls in each yeah. half yeah. that that were this sort of like not every ball into him has been perfect yeah. d- through the championship, but they've been serviceable enough, and he's been strong enough, or has been allowed by whoever he's playing against to get himself into position. There were two balls in each half that came in towards the pair of them, and Casey just. Eased him out of the way. The interesting thing about Casey, uh, I was talking to Damien Quigley, uh, the former Limerick hurler last week, who's a club mate of Casey in the Piercing, who said that because Mike Casey, uh, as he grew up as a as a hurler, was never the biggest, you know, that he, as he as he as he grew up and as he is now. But he said because of that, um, he's a very intelligent player, mm. and he learned young to use that intelligence. Mm to assist his game when he came up against. And, you know, if you're going in with the physical disadvantage that you were yeah. talking about, you've got to be intelligent to, yeah. to plan a way Now, I'm saying that, he, he is built like a tank, in fairness. He, you know, he's, yep. he's, he's, not, he's, he's not a tiny he's man. Not a, he's or not a Glynn like tank. No, though. no, no. And also, I think it was sort of redemptive for him, and certainly Shane Dowling, because remembering back to the club final mm. when the Piercing played, uh, played Kula and Dowling missed the freeze from four up uh, and at three up, Kula got the goal at the very end Mm. uh, uh, to draw the match. And also in the replay, Casey had to go off injured after about half an hour. Mm. And he'd been doing such a good job on Conor Callaghan. And I think there was a fear amongst Limerick yesterday that when they saw Casey going going off, you know, what did this this mean for them? Because it was very early. It was 51st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, yeah, but he was terrific. Yeah. It was it was a really big issue in that match that was settled in Limerick's favour. Keith, let's uh, let's talk about Galway a bit. I mean, uh, what did it look like to you 
I remember saying in in the build up that I wondered were, were we going to be sitting around on Sunday night and Monday morning talking about how Galway were were tiring physically and you know maybe just a little bit of a running out of road a little bit. Did it look like that to you, or or, or how do we explain the, how flat they were? Yeah, I think it ha- it has yet to be explained. Um, they just, I mean, as I was saying earlier, I felt they just they just really really lacked energy over that first half hour mm. particularly on their own puck out they're just very very static it's got a very very few options um they're just spread across the field standing still very very little movement whereas you know limerick were just just full of movement full of energy and they, they they're really using the, the the space in in, in the galway half very very well um so yeah i mean clearly they were you know their energy levels were 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 falling all the time, um. But you know, for a little while, they they seemed to be kind of teetering on the brink of a humiliation in that final, um, yesterday. And in fairness, they found it within themselves to to you know to 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 push for to push for home. But yeah, like it obviously the the championship just caught up in them. There, there was a moment, uh, Keith, very early in the match, the initial. Uh, skirmishes where Park Mannion, you know, uh, top candidate for hurler of the year yeah. then and probably still, um, and he was just surrounded. Like yeah. Limerick hounded him, yeah. ran yeah. him, uh, you know, in, 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 into ever decreasing circles. And you got this sense that Crikey, uh, are Galway entirely at the pitch of of this because this is a, a player who's been so, de- you know, dominant mm. and, and had such. Uh, time on on the ball in previous matches yeah. and was really being harassed. Yeah. And look at the I think all the Limerick goals came from Galway defenders being yeah. turned over. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and becoming isolated in a way that they weren't particularly last year. Um, they, they, just that just that that defense and that backline was pulled apart and stretched. Um, and they were just yeah, really really basic errors that are really really going to hurt them for, for 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 a long time. I think like they gave they gave up a lot of scores that. They just don't normally. Well, maybe this year they have been giving them up. They and have actually, an and, and that that was actually a sort of a, a, a sneaky under the radar thing. Yeah. Throughout the championship, they have been giving up a lot of goals. Yeah. Throughout the championship, and and again, like as you were saying, Pat, you know, like as the as Limerick were really sort of tightening with with the end line in sight or the finish line in sight, it was only goals that were that were keeping them sustained at all and that has been a thing that Galway Galway have given up a heap of goals all the way through the championship yeah they really have and Dahi Burke for somebody who has had yeah. a brilliant year yeah, yeah. I, I think he was definitely discombobulated the first day by John Connellan mm. but I thought the Shims Flanagan um, was superb yesterday mm. for a full forward who ended up with a point he was he. I thought he played a fantastic game and they did things that we haven't seen like the ball that um, Dan was it Dan? It is Dan, isn't it? Dan Morrissey. No, Tom Morrissey took off uh, Gerard McInerney for the goal. We haven't seen that all year. There was another point where Dahi Burke was heading for the sideline and he went to take it mm. and Seamus Flanagan just took it, the ball off him. Mm. We haven't seen that all year. But it's it's actually uh, exactly as Keith was saying though that that even take that Gerard McInerney time that, that he was robbed for that goal, he was the last man in defence and there was mm. nobody else around him. You know, that... that, that he Morrissey was was in for a goal and only had the covering defender coming. Was it Hanbury coming across to kind of step inside at that stage? Yeah. That sort of thing has just not been happening to Galway all year. Yeah, I think team. they lost confidence in the structure of their defence because of the amount of crisscrossing runs that Limerick mm. were doing. 
by that stage. Sorry, Keith. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, they seem to have that sort of get out of jail pass available all the time last year. And it just it just hasn't been the case this year. But in fairness, like Limerick had their homework done really, really well and knew exactly what, like even the very first play of the game, I think they left, I think it was Aaron Galan was inside on, on Dahi Burke. Burke and they pulled the two corner forwards out and just isolated Burke and Galan and they nearly got a goal out of it if you remember in the very, very first play of the game. Mm. Um, so, you know, they just, they had their homework done, they were very, very organised and they just, they never really allowed that Galway defence settle. Um, into into and impose themselves in the way in the way they they did they did last season, um, and you know Galway look kind of they look kind of one dimensional for a while uh, when they just kept pumping that long ball down on Glenn and it was it was there was very little ball that Glenn could actually just attack in the air, you know he always seemed to be sort of stretching behind them it was just just too too much weight on the ball a lot of the time. Sean. Um I think we do this after every All-Ireland final every year and we kind of say, God, this team could dominate going forward. But um, now that Limerick, with an astonishing age profile in their team, basically Declan Hannon's 25, Graham Mulcahy's 28 and everybody else is younger than 23, I think, on that team that started yesterday. Do you, Now that they have the 45-year gorilla off their back, how do you think that this Limerick team will legitimately target more All-Irelands? You'd imagine so. I mean, you you need to be a little bit circumspect about th- these things because we think back to 2013 yeah. and a Clare team largely composed of under-21 All-Ireland winners and a lot of players who weren't even out of under-21 at that stage and you assumed, you know, these are, these are good players, technically they're fast, they're bright lads, no reason why they can't add to it. And, and, they, and they never even, they never, that... 15 never played a game together again. Yeah, and they never got back to Croke Park until yeah. th- th- this season. So it's it's very hard to, to tell what the impact of winning the All-Ireland w- w- will be. But you'd have to say that, yeah, Limerick, uh, th- th- they've put this together on the basis of it's, you know, it's been an organic growth from, you know, the, the, the success of the school's teams in Limerick, the, particularly the success of the, the third-level colleges in, in, in Limerick. Three colleges there have been dominating Fitzgibbon. Um, they're under twenty ones, winning all Irelands. Like they, they're coming with a with a, with a huge pedigree, and uh, they they seem very level headed. I mean, you've seen that in the way they've approached matches and the way they've refused to buckle when matches have gone against them. And uh, you would think that, but you're right. Every year we look at the All Ireland champions and say, you know, uh, who's who's, yeah. who's going to take you know who's going to take these down and. Uh, it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way and in fairness for all of their pedigree and their underage success and the Fitzgibbons and all that they were six points down with five minutes left against Cork Mm. in the semi-final and uh, had had Cork seen that out you know we'd be talking you know about next year's championship like Mm. I I still think it's a very very feasible thing that we could be sitting here at the first Sunday in June or in July next year the week of the Munster final and Limerick may not have even made it in the in the top three of Mm. of the Munster championship I think the format now the like I think the one thing that we have got to take away from this championship it having been so even and level all the way through is that God Almighty, that Munster Championship next year. There's absolutely no guarantee that the All Ireland champions come through that. Yeah, it's you know. incredible. So, so to be no. to be wondering about where where they can go from here. <laughs> yeah, to wonder about when 
when eventually they're going to stop winning all Ireland. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but isn't it interesting that it's actually the third team in Munster won the yeah. All Ireland? So exactly. you know, didn't even make the, the provincial make the final. final yeah. um, adding to the general sense that the provincial championship, particularly in Munster. Um, is almost becoming detached from the real business uh, in terms of you know record of monster champions and well you know. in, in as much I, I think you're absolutely right and and I saw like Sarah Farland all talking about la- last night about the final you know the monster final devalued all that sort of stuff let's never forget though what the monster championship gave to this championship yeah. like it was it was what a highlight now whatever about the final and who ultimately wins it you know maybe that's not such a big deal in the end and certainly in the overall but my god what it gave to the championship anyway we've gone on way too long Th- thanks a million Keith and Sean and we'll talk to you again cheers lads I was kind of joking earlier, Pat. Uh, you you didn't watch the uh, whole of the Man City documentary when you were off uh, because it only came out last Friday. It did, yeah. <laughs> they dropped all um, eight episodes of it on Amazon Prime last yeah. Friday, and uh, I I watched it. Over you the were weekend. pretty bewitched by it, though, all the same. Completely, but part of the reason though I was able to watch it was because I actually ended up watching it with my wife, who has zero interest in sport. I know this. Minus interest in sport. Yeah, minus I'd say be a better description. Yeah. And, um, but she a few years ago fell in love with Friday Night Lights, you know, the TV show. Yeah. And she actually thought that this documentary was a bit like that. In, in that she could take or leave the parts where they cut to the pitch. Right. But everything off the pitch was quite riveting. And, and it was. And does it go that deep? It does. They, the best parts of it were when they um, I'll come, we'll come back to Pep, who is basically the main character. Okay. I found parts of it fascinating just from a kind of behind the curtain uh, way of looking at things and how the millionaires live. Like even seeing their canteen in the city training ground was fascinating. They have a barber on site. I always wondered how Premier League players are always so perfectly quaffed. <laughs> Uh, and now I know, like, so I presume Man United have the same thing, and that's how well, Pogba gets his Well, I presume Pogba has stars. his own, and then everybody else has to make do with, with whoever's left. Yeah, and uh, and even then, one of my my favourite things behind the scenes part of it was they have a lecture hall on site, literally like something from college, where and Pep is always the last one into the room. So the players are sitting there in the lecture theatre, and he walks in, and he goes to the top of the room, dims the light. Sergio Aguero is always sitting in the front row, looking kind of bored. And he dims the light and then goes, okay, now I'm going to explain how Liverpool will attack. <laughs> and uh, and you know the way when on BBC when they do clips, they often have down in the bottom corner awful Arsenal defending and then yeah, the, yeah, while they're showing. Yeah, yeah. like Chirons. Pe- is that what they're called? Chirons. Well, like Pep would have at the bottom written along the screen, perfection needed in attack. <laughs> and and then he's got clips kind of showing how they're going to break down the team that they're playing against. I wouldn't get too carried away with the fact that they have a lecture hall. Most uh, inter-county teams have a lecture hall in their centres of excellence. So I wouldn't get too, uh, too 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 blown away by that. Let's set the scene for this. What What is this? What is it? It's, it's a year in the life of, of Man City, uh, yeah, essentially. Yeah, a year in the life of Man City uh, where they got Amazon, who made it, got unbelievable access to go behind the scenes Everywhere. Does it feel like they got unbelievable access, or does it, or are you looking at it going, this is this is made to look like they got unbelievable access? Like like this is a Man City production after all. It's not an Amazon production. No, it is an Amazon production. Right. It's actually part of a series. Uh, I didn't know there. There's an all or nothing for the LA Rams, and it, there's there's okay. been more American versions of it. But I would be stunned, even though they haven't believed this, if Manchester City didn't have editorial control. Mm. 
because the access is brilliant. Sorry, I should say it's based over last season. So it's mm. based over the record-breaking season mm. where they got like 100 points. But they have a couple of brilliant behind-the-scenes things. The best parts are when they go in-depth with the players. Like they, Benjamin Mendy early last season hurt himself in a game. He got brought off to this um, hospital in Barcelona and they have a camera on his face as the doctor is explaining to him the severity of his knee injury and how he's gone for the season. And you can see it all kind of sink in. And it's brilliant sort of human uh, emotion. And I and also would say for that part, when he actually got hurt on the pitch, I was explaining to my wife, uh, mansplaining, oh, that's quite a serious injury. And she said, yeah, I know I can hear the music. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the, there was like a sad cello in the background as he was like rolling on the turf. Like it, like they signpost it, but they also don't spoon feed it yeah. too much. Like it's still, um, it's still interesting. And we'll say there's another... Uh, a couple of fascinating things. I know very little about Sergio Aguero. Manchester City's all-time leading mm-hmm. goal scorer. And they went to his house and he showed him around the house. And there seems to be kind of a sadness about Sergio Aguero in general. And it turns out he lives alone. And his wife and child live in Argentina. And the child visits like once uh, once a month for a few days and is then gone again. And Sergio Aguero has an incredibly plush cinema in his basement, I assume, that would clearly hold 20 or 30 people. But he was asked what kind of films he watches and he watches um, mafia films he said he likes and war films. And I think they said to him, do you like scary movies? And he said, oh no. And he kind of looked around and indicated around the room to go, I live alone. I'm not going watching a scary movie <laughs> in this setting. Like it would be horrific. Uh, so like, I found all of that really engaging. But um, we'll say we don't see guys flipping out and screaming in each other's faces, which makes me think the editorial control has to have been in there Mm. somewhere. We'll say another lovely thing that they do is they go behind the scene with with Silva and he talks about... David Silva. David Silva, Mm. sorry. And he talks about his uh, child, Matteo, that was born really prematurely last Mm. season and he missed an awful lot of games. Which is a story that everybody was tangentially aware of, I guess, because he he had a long absence from the team. Exactly. And then actually, so when they beat Huddersfield at the weekend, he was actually... Matteo was at the match for the first time. But um, but having said that, the star of the show, from my point of view in a way, is Pep. Well, we, uh, we're going to get on to that. Uh, we'll, we'll play a, a little clip yes. of him in a, in a dressing room scenario and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it after that. We play to win a game, but we cannot lose it. But we lose it. Four against one back, then we can see the goal. In the final, that cannot, that cannot happen. That cannot happen. We cannot score a goal, guys, but we cannot concede a goal. But football in that stages is that counts, that means. <laughs> in this kind of game, we have to finish with 11. This was the final. We have to finish with 11. That is the point, guys. That we are good. Are good. I'm telling you, they playing good than us. No. No. It is red card. They say the seven red cards we didn't concede is red card. I know it's so difficult this kind of game, but we go through all the time with the whole competitions. There are moments, okay, it's 12 minutes left, 11 minutes left, 10 minutes left to finish the game, okay, we don't score a goal, but we don't score Tell me this. Yeah. Uh, so that's a clip. Uh, is there any better or more insightful stuff from Guardiola in that? Because to me, that sounds like him saying, we can't concede a goal. We need to score goals. Can't get sent off. Now, I'm no expert, but 
But I know enough about football to know that that is fairly central tenet. Is there is there more than that? Um, you know, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny thing is that um, watching it, you do find yourself thinking: Do these players all speak Pep? Because a load of it is quite. Um, unintelligible mm. like I, I know you get used to people's accents mm-hmm. and all that and an awful lot of his communication comes through gesticulation mm. and definitely all the stuff he does in the training pitch you regularly see him go over and grab guys by the shoulders and turn them I think there was that famous thing that they showed of Raheem, him coaching Raheem Sterling about taking the ball on mm. the turn mm. and he was literally grabbing Sterling by the shoulders and turning him he's incredibly tactile he seems to touch everybody mm. and that seems to be an awful lot of his communication he's like a just a whirling dervish of movement mm. around and he's constantly like kissing and hugging people and talking to them incredibly intently. He does a number of um, team talks where he has, you know, the, the magnetic pieces on yes. the on the whiteboard. And a few of them are really like, do you remember Pele is one of those in Escape to Victory? Yeah, yeah. Where I, he do says, these, I do this, I do this, I do this, I, do do this, yeah. I score. And uh, basically he does that a few times where he kind of, he's grabbing a blue magnet and he's moving it to midfield and goes, here, yes. Here, and he moves it back 10 meters. Here, no. If this happens, then they go here. They score. Yeah. And you're kind of wondering how much of it they're taking in, if you know what I mean. But part of it is probably repetition. Yeah. But his method of communication is incredibly intense. And watching it, you do find yourself wondering. People talk now about Mourinho being in his third season at United and is he, he burns out teams. I can't understand watching it how Pep doesn't burn out teams. There's one brilliant scene. I think they were flying home from Naples and they have a camera shooting down the centre of the airplane and everybody's asleep. The entire backroom staff, all the players, they're all panned out. And then they... Because it's like two in the morning. Because it's whatever time in the morning. And the camera pans left where Guardiola is sitting there bug-eyed in front of his laptop, clearly re-watching the match and taking notes and couldn't be more awake and that just seems to be his his constant setting. He is always on. And you'd wonder if it's, if it's exhausting to deal with. Did you buy it? Like, did you buy... Did you think you were being fed this idea that Pep is this, this manic, uh, obsessional perfectionist? Uh, and is, is it his story? I just... I, I was... Mm. I remember reading uh, the, the the first Marty Perrineau book about Pep, uh, his first his season at, at Bayern Munich. Oh, Pep Confidential. Pep Confidential. And started giving up on it about 200 pages in because I just couldn't take any more of the hagiography. I, I have no doubt that Guardiola is maybe the greatest coach in the game at the minute and one of the greatest of all time I've no, you only need to watch his teams and see his players improve to see that and I love watching his teams but I just wonder with something like this as with with the Pep Confidential book uh, how much of it are we being sold or how mm. how much of a I don't know I, I will definitely watch this but I don't know. Did you, do you do you feel that you got an insight into him that that you didn't have already? Well, first of all, the flip side of it is to watch his teams play, and, absolutely, and to see kind of well, he does get this message yeah. across. Um, the other side is that you do have a point that he, he does seem to he gets his teams to play in this very particular way. But there's definitely stage management involved, and I was mm. surprised by parts they showed 
in it where they actually at one point show him in a room watching the Sky guys commenting on him and they're commenting on how oh you know he won the leagues at Barcelona or sorry at Bayern Munich but did he improve Bayern Munich and you could see his eyebrows kind of go up kind of going I did improve Bayern Munich how dare these guys <laughs> but I'm surprised that they show that like he's they do show how aware he is of perception mm. they also show how he's not scared of perception at all it's incredible the amount of times he says to the team you're the greatest team in the world and when ahead of the second leg that they had against Liverpool in the mm. Champions League quarterfinal, they were starting at 3-0 down. And Klopp did a press conference that day where he said, look, they've been the best team in Europe for the last year. We need to be aware of that. And then Guardiola's in his lecture hall telling the players the last thing before they left the room was to go, Jurgen Klopp today said you're the best team in the world. He knows it. They, they know it. You should know it too. You can do this, you know. And like he embraces all the yeah. hype and uses it. So maybe that's how he doesn't actually exhaust his team because he makes them feel so good about themselves. Yeah. He never makes them feel like automatons or anything. If, uh, if as we speak, uh, the Amazon Prime people are following them around through this season, uh, having watched this, would you watch it again? Would you watch the account of this season at the end of next year? Uh, yes. I actually want the Amazon Prime team to go to Old Trafford. Of course. Well, that's what everybody wants, of I, course. That, that would there, be... There the may be a more interesting uh, saga going on there. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Mourinho was complaining about this um, mm. during the week, saying that they have no class. And he was complaining about his depiction in it. I don't know if that means that he's watched it. But, like, he's right. Mm. It, for once, um, you're not paranoid if they actually are out to yeah. get you, Jose. Um, well, events have kind of overtaken that. I'm not. I'm sure. I feel Jose is more in his mind this week than uh, what some documentary says about him last week. <laughs> yeah, they do position him just as the antithesis, though, of Pep. And yeah. like, they even like have aerial shots of Old Trafford where they play um, sort of uh, Death Star music <laughs> above it. Uh, so yeah, he, like it's it's definitely stage managed, mm. but. I think if you're definitely a Man City fan, but I think if you're a Premier League fan, you definitely find it intriguing and you definitely would get ammunition. If you want to say that Pep is a bluffer, you'll definitely find ammunition for that. And if you want to say that he's a genius, you'll definitely find ammunition for that too. Mm, I would imagine that uh, the Liverpool fans would be in the first category there and will be using that as the season goes along in the <laughs> obvious title race that is to come. <laughs> uh, listen, thanks a million for that. Uh, thanks to Keith and Sean uh, who were on with us earlier talking about the hurling. Uh, we will be back next week, folks, and get in touch with us through all the available offices. Cheers, folks. Take it easy.